Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Today's the day when we tie up the few loose ends remaining in regards to the case that was built against Robert and Christian. You've already heard the most powerful evidence that the state has to offer. But in today's episode, I'm going to briefly break down a few things that we haven't covered yet. One is the short interview of John Hayward's son, Robbie. Most of you will recall that I stated repeatedly that I won't be sharing the audio of this interview. The reason for that is just because it captures the moments right after he discovered that his father was dead. It's an intensely emotional and private moment. But I will be breaking down the contents of that interview and posting the transcript to our website. We're also going to cover Robert's girlfriend at the time, Sarah Honaker's interview and her testimony. We're going to review a few little items from Robert's first interview that were brought up in Wednesday's YouTube Live. And last but not least, I reached out this week to Robert's cousin Marty to talk about what he remembers from the night and the week of the murders. All of these things were balls that were dropped during the original investigation. This is Season 12, Episode 55, Errors of Omission. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Robbie Hayward's interview was short and sweet. From what I've been able to piece together, Robbie just showed up at the house to find all of the fire trucks and the police vehicles there. There's a bit of mention of maybe Detective Eichelt going to his house to inform Robbie of what happened, but it sounds like maybe that's what he was planning to do, not what he actually did. And when you read the transcript, you'll see there had obviously been a bit of conversation before the recording began. I believe that's when Eichelt broke the news to Robbie. At the time of the murders, Robbie, who was 26 years old, was living with his mother in La Quinta. One of the first things Eichelt says to Robbie is, quote, So were you supposed to come up tonight or last night? End quote. So obviously, that had already been mentioned before the recording started. Unfortunately, we don't get much of an explanation as to exactly what the plans were or why Robbie canceled them. This is one instance where I don't fault Detective Eichelt. 
this conversation in this moment was definitely not the time for those types of probing questions. I do, however, fault LeClaire for not following up with Robbie later once things had calmed down. But getting back to that question, when Robbie was asked if he was supposed to go up to the house tonight, meaning Monday, that night, or last night, meaning the night of the murders, or Sunday, the transcript says that his answer is inaudible, and listening to the recording, it truly is. I'm guessing that Eichelt understood his answer because he was standing right in front of him, but on the recording, Robbie's clearly crying, he's talking really quietly, and his voice just kind of tails off. I spent about an hour trying to repair the audio on this few seconds, and I still can't make it out. I hear him say, yeah, something else, then maybe both days. I can't make out the rest. So I'm going to play for you just this little five-second response to see if any of you can make out what he's saying. I'll play it twice for you. And remember, the question was if he was supposed to go up last night, the night of the murders, or tonight, the night after the murders. Here's Robbie's response, cleaned up as best as I can get it. And here it is again. Let me know on social media or through email what you think he's saying, because I really just can't make it out. There's not a lot of meaningful information in the rest of the interview. Robbie says that he doesn't talk to his dad very often and that they're not close. He also says that he's not really close to Vicky and the girls either. Eichelt asks him, quote, So you had no idea this happened, end quote. And Robbie says no. Then Eichelt says that he's sorry to be the one to break the news to him. He then asks if John and Vicky would have been in bed around 9.30 or 10 p.m. when he thinks the crimes occurred. And Robbie first says yes, because his dad works early in the morning, and then follows up saying that they'd probably either be asleep or watching TV or something. Unfortunately, this isn't at all definitive, and we also have no idea when the attacks began. We only know when they ended. And on top of that, I don't think Robbie ever lived with John and Vicky, so I doubt he would really know for sure what their bedtime habits were. On page five of the only eight-page transcript is where I think we see how this whole interview came to be. It sounds like Eichelt had left the scene and was heading back down the mountain to look for family members to contact and notify when someone at the scene contacted him and told him that Robbie had shown up. So Eichelt turned around and went back to the crime scene, and that's when he notified Robbie about the, at that point, likely death of his father. The bodies hadn't been identified yet. What I don't know is what time all of this occurred. From context, I think it was late afternoon, early evening on Monday. And I think what was going on is that that was the night that Robbie was planning to go up and visit his dad. But I'm not sure. On the next page, things really get confusing because, again, you can't make out what Robbie's saying. And the transcript has a lot of spots marked inaudible. Robbie says he's not aware of anyone who would want to kill John and Vicky. He's not aware of any money problems or any beefs they might have had with anyone. He says that, quote, Vicky's a little cuckoo, but not bad. Her ex-husband, I know they never have been on good terms, end quote. And then, right when you think you're going to get some details about what was going on, you can't hear what they're saying. I'll just read the next bit right from the transcript, just the way it's written. 
Eichelt. Right. So you think other than, other than, other than inaudible. Robbie. I was here for inaudible. Eichelt. Right. Huh. Okay. Everything seemed normal, though. And how would you describe... Robbie. Yeah, yesterday was just happy to see me inaudible come up inaudible this weekend. Eichelt. Well, kind of scary. Everybody that the folks that talk to, we've been talking to, that's how we found out you might have been spending the night up here. I don't know how they knew. Somebody must have talked to Rebecca quite a bit. Robbie. Yeah, I think she she knew. Eichelt. One of her friends, one of her friends said you were coming up, but they thought you were coming yesterday. Robbie. Yeah. Eichelt. Probably a good thing. Robbie. Yeah. So, again, only basing on context, it sounds like, and I believe it was Javier who had mentioned that Robbie was coming because Becky had told him that, it sounds like Javier was under the impression that Robbie was going to be up there for the weekend, but the real plan was that Robbie was going to come up on Monday night. He does say in another place in the interview that on Sunday night he had went and helped his sister move up somewhere else. I just wish it was more clear so we knew exactly what was going on here. But after this, Eichelt just makes arrangements for Robbie to follow him down the mountain and then meet at the station. And then after that, we never hear from Robbie again. The error of omission here is that someone should have sat down in a controlled setting and conducted a thorough interview with Robbie. We could have learned more about what was going on that weekend, at the very least. Remember, we already know something was hinky. Vicky had told Tiffany that she needed to get away that weekend, and she actually made plans to do so. She wasn't supposed to be home that Sunday night, but for some reason that no one knows why, she ended up not going to visit Tiffany. Then, at the same time, we have John making some kind of plans with his son to come to the house when he hadn't been there in a long time, and he says he wasn't close to his dad at all. Plus, we have the change in finances. I don't know what it all means, but I know that it should have been followed up on rather than LeClaire putting a year's worth of effort into trying to figure out if Javier is gay or not. I've already made an attempt to contact Robbie once. You might remember I went to his house and I was turned away at the gate. He said that he didn't want to talk to me. But I do intend on making a final attempt to talk to several of the victim's family members before we conclude the season now that I think I have a much clearer understanding of what went wrong here. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Next up, I want to briefly discuss another massive omission by LeClaire. And that's the fact that he never bothered to interview Robert's girlfriend at the time of the murders. Sarah Honaker. This was a huge miss. Robert called and spoke with Sarah at 10.43 p.m. on the night of the murders. There are only two people that he had contact with 
right after the state alleges that Robert and Christian committed this horrific triple homicide. There was the check to voicemail on the sector that covers James' work in middle school at 10.23 p.m. Robert says he had also received a text message from his cousin Marty asking him to pick up some chapstick for him. Then he went to his grandmother's house to hang out with Marty after picking up the chapstick, and he called his girlfriend Sarah. So Marty and Sarah should have been first on the list of people to talk to, but LeClaire never bothered to contact either one of them. It was pointed out by a member of the guilty crowd on social media that Sarah testified at trial and that it was unusual for her not to be able to get a hold of Robert on the night of the murders. This listener, shout out to Jason, was making a pretty big whoop about how important that testimony was. He sees Sarah as reliable, and the fact that she found it unusual that she couldn't get Robert on the phone that night was presented as some kind of smoking gun. Luckily enough, I was already planning to cover Sarah's connection to the case in this week's episode. And as it turns out, if you read her full testimony, and not just cherry-pick the line that I just mentioned, you'll see that Sarah's testimony was actually kind of a backfire for the state. So, the prosecution put Sarah on the stand in order to drive home the point that Robert's phone did not have a connection to a tower at the time of the murders. And her job was to make them realize that that wasn't normal. And she did that, but here's the thing. She didn't say it was the only time it ever happened. She didn't say it never happened. She says she remembers it being unusual. And if you look at Robert's phone records, you'll see that it's really not even that. Maybe it's unusual for his phone to be off or out of service when she was trying to get a hold of him, but there are periods of darkness where people are calling Robert and his phone wasn't connected to a tower throughout the snapshot of records that we have for him. It wasn't out of the ordinary at all. It was a daily occurrence. But for the sake of argument, let's give that one to Jason. Yep, it was unusual for Sarah not to be able to get a hold of Robert. But now, let's look at the rest of her testimony. First, let's address how unusual it was. Here's an exchange between Robert's attorney, Moore, and Sarah during cross-examination. Quote, Moore. One of your complaints about Robert's relationship with Christian back in that period of time is that sometimes Robert wouldn't want to answer his phone when you called if he was with Christian, right? Sarah. I knew that guy time was guy time and girlfriend time was girl time. So I... I knew when I called, it wasn't a good thing if I called. End quote. Moore is referencing Sarah's 2016 police statement in this question. So Sarah is saying, yes, it's unusual, but also as a rule, when Sarah was hanging out with the girls or Robert with Christian, they didn't talk to each other on the phone. So sounds like not that unusual. Now, it should be noted that Sarah is Robert's ex-wife at this point. They divorced shortly after his first arrest. At trial, Robert was dating his now wife, B. And here's another interesting part of his ex-wife Sarah's testimony. Quote, More. Now, throughout the entirety of your relationship with Mr. Pape, was he ever violent with you in any way? Sarah. Never. More. Did he ever give you cause for concern about your safety being around him? Sarah. No. More. Did you ever give him reason to be angry or potentially violent if he were that kind of person? Sarah. Never. He doesn't have it in him. 
more. Well, let me ask you this. Was there ever a time when you had to admit to him that you had been unfaithful? Sarah. I have. More. And that was during your marriage? Sarah. Correct. More. Did he deal with that in, well, did he react in any sort of violent way? Sarah. Not at all. More. What was his reaction? Sarah. Very hurt, very sad, just really hurt, um, cut me off. More. I'm sorry, what did you say? Sarah. Ended ties with me. End quote. That was Robert's ex-wife, the woman he was in a relationship with at the time of the murders, who he spoke with minutes after the murders, and who lived with him for the next eight years, being asked if Robert was ever violent. And her response is, quote, Never. He doesn't have it in him. End quote. Now believe me, I know how this game works. Had she said that he has a violent temper, this would be held up as clear evidence of guilt. But since this state's witness says that Robert is incapable of violence, it'll be deemed irrelevant by the crowd that would want it to go the other way. Personally, I find it extremely meaningful, and not because it supports what I've been saying for months now that Robert and Christian are innocent, but because Sarah Honaker would know better than anyone what Robert's real personality and capacity for violence is. Think about your partner if you have one. That's the person in your life who knows everything about you. Most people in your life know what you're like in a social setting. They think they know the full you based on their interactions with you in public and your social media posts, but we all know that the social media you and the real you are not the same person. Robert's ex-wife knew him truly intimately and lived in the same house as him for eight years, and she testified that he doesn't have it in him to be violent. Later in her testimony, she says that, quote, Even though we don't speak, he's still one of the best people I've ever known. End quote. And this ex-wife of Robert's, who was the first person he spoke to, minutes after the state claims that he had just committed a triple homicide and burned not only a house, but also his ex-girlfriend's body, was asked on the sand, quote, Through it all, you've been steadfast in your belief that Mr. Pape did not commit this crime. And her response was a resounding, Absolutely. Now, if you're willing to dismiss everything Sarah has to say about Robert, then don't even come at me with Facebook pictures of him from social media. Not only is social media not real life, but the things people are pointing out have nothing to do with violence. Going out into a remote safe place or a gun range to target shoot or try out a flamethrower or even collecting guns and knives and having violent posters are not the same thing as being violent. That's not violence. Those are hobbies. Violence is hurting living things, people, animals. Now, in today's society, the definition of violence has certainly expanded beyond just physical harm. But the bottom line is, there's no evidence at all of Robert ever being a violent person. Which is why I wasn't surprised at all to read that the woman who lived with him for eight years believes with conviction 
that he's not only innocent of this crime, but isn't even capable of violence. After reading Sarah's trial testimony, I went back and read through the transcripts of her 2016 police interview, which, by the way, was the first time investigators ever bothered to interview her. The interview was long, and I'll post the transcript, but one part in particular really caught my attention and also infuriated me. So it's been said over and over again that Robert never said that he turned his phone off that night and therefore must have been in an area with no service and therefore must have been at the crime scene. So since we just heard the second interview last week, I wanted to circle back to his first interview to see how it was addressed the day after the murders. And what I found was there was no discussion at all about his phone activity. In that interview, Detective Michaels didn't know anything about the crime yet, so he was just asking Robert for some basic information, like where did he go that night? And to address something that was brought up in the YouTube chat on Wednesday, he was also never asked about where he was driving. It was said during the lie that in that interview, Robert was supplying his alibi, so surely he wouldn't leave any detail out, and he would have mentioned every move he made. But first of all, there was no suggestion during that interview until page 33 out of 39, which is well after the segment we're talking about now, that a crime had been committed at all. I encourage all of you to either read the transcript again or just go back and listen to episode 3 and hear it for yourself. Robert's impression of what happened was that there had been a fire that killed Becky and her family. He speaks about conversations that he had with Javier about the house was made of old timber and how it would easily burn. It's not until the last few minutes of the interview when Michaels says, quote, Let's say this isn't an accident and the place didn't burn down or whatever. Is there anybody you could think of that would want to hurt any of them? End quote. That is the first time it's suggested that a crime occurred. Now, as far as Robert explaining what he was doing that night, one of the biggest issues in this interview is that Michaels keeps interrupting him. That's where the confusion comes in about Christian's car. Remember, Michaels asks Robert what Christian drives. And this is a big deal where people had said, oh, Robert lied. And he said their stories didn't match up about what the cars were. But go back and listen again or read the transcript. Michaels says, what does Christian drive? He's not clear about if he meant that night or what does he drive in general. Robert's response is, quote, Well, he himself drives a Hearst Oldsmobile, but... And before he can finish his sentence and explain what the but is about, Michaels interrupts him, and they have a whole conversation about what a Hertz Olds is. Most likely, I would imagine what Robert was about to say is exactly what Christian said, that he himself drives a Hearst Oldsmobile, but it had been in the shop for months, so last night he was driving his dad's Acura. The same thing happens in the interview when they were discussing where Robert went that night. Robert explains that he's at his house with his mom. He says she wanted him to go to church, but Christian was going to go with him. Let me read you the part of the transcript that was brought up in the live. Quote, Robert. Um, I'd say I probably left the park around 6.30. Michaels. Where'd you go? Robert. Home. And I was home for about 30 minutes. I was home for a little while, maybe half hour, 45 minutes, probably right in that time zone. Uh, my mom was trying to get me to go to church, and I was going to go to Sacred Heart, but then I called them and they didn't. Their last mass was 5.30. And then Michaels interrupts him and says, So your mom was home with you? Robert. Yeah. Michaels. 
What's your mom's name? End quote. Then they talk about how to get a hold of Robert's mom for a few minutes. Now, I'll concede that yes, Robert didn't specifically say that they started to drive towards the church and then he called and found out they missed Mass. But he never got a chance to finish his thought, for one thing, and secondly, he's not giving that kind of detail about anything in this interview. He was asked where he went, not how he got there. His statement is basically this. He and Christian were going to go to church. Mass was over, so they went to Christian's house instead. Then they went to James Workman. Then they got chapstick. Then home to hang out with and play video games with his cousin Marty. To make this argument like it's some big smoking gun, like Robert omitted something or that he never said they drove anywhere south of his house, is nonsense. It would be the same as if you asked me, where'd you go last night? And I said, I went to my daughter's softball game. And then later you claimed that I left out that I drove down Shawnee Road that night. You didn't ask me how I got there. You asked me where I went. Robert wasn't asked where he drove or where he was heading or what streets he was on. He was asking what places he went to. Listener Jason also pointed out that in that exchange, Robert said that his mom was with him when he made the call to Sacred Heart. But that's not what he said. And again, I suggest you go back and listen, but even reading it, you can see what he's talking about. Robert said his mom wanted him to go. He was going to go, but then he called and found out that he missed Mass. And at that point, that's when Michaels interrupts him again and says, so your mom was home with you? He's confirming that she was witness to him being home before he went to Christians. I don't believe that either of them thought he was specifically asking if Kathleen was with Robert when he made the call. But you go ahead and listen again and you be the judge. Michael says, so your mom was home with you. And it's true that when Robert was at home, his mother was there. I'm actually really glad the discussion about the first interview came up because I caught something that I think is really relevant regarding the information that Robert had coming from Javier rather than guilty knowledge in that interview. I missed it before, but it kind of jumped off the screen at me this time around. Here's Robert from page 30 of the transcript. He's asked what Javier had told him about the fire at this point. Quote, Okay, uh, he called me this morning. I, I, I can look up what time he called me. But he called me fairly early this morning. He um, explained that, uh, you know, he's like, hey, did you hear what happened? I said, no. He said, there's a fire at Becky's house and they found three people. Um, And then uh, he called me twice, you know, and just gave me like a little bit of information. Then he called me back and he was calling me back as he found out more unintelligible. But from as far as I know, there's three people. Two of them were... um, like the sex was unrecognizable. One who was found in a wheelbarrow um, was um, a female about 20 years old. Um, and the whole house was, the whole house was, I don't know, destroyed or the whole house was caught on fire apparently, um, which wasn't really, you know, it's kind of an older house, unintelligible, would make sense. Um, it wasn't much more um, unintelligible. Oh, and then he called and said that Her dad was called in to try to identify any of the three, and I guess he couldn't do it. And then the last thing I heard was they loaded up the bodies and bags and took them out. End quote. So did any of you catch that at the end? Becky's dad was brought in to identify the bodies and wasn't able to. As far as I know, 
Javier's never met Ron Friedley. So the first question is, how would Robert know that Becky's dad was asked to ID the bodies and was unable to if he didn't get that information from Javier along with all the other information? Secondly, is that something the killer would know or is that something investigators would know after the fact? Then thirdly, how would Javier know that it happened if not for his dad's connection to the investigation? Let me break down this segment of Sarah Honecker's interview with Ryan Bodmer in 2016. Bodmer. What did he eventually end up telling you at any point after about his whereabouts that night? What did he say his where he was and where he went? Because I'm, I'm sure he had to have, when things started to get, you know, um, some at some point you learned that he was a suspect in a crime. Everybody did. Sarah. Mm-hmm. Bodmer. What was his... Sarah. He told me that he was with Christian and that they were paintballing behind James Workman and that his phone was off or he turned his phone off because the battery was dying. Bodmer. He told you that later. He didn't tell you that night on the phone when you called. Sarah. No, he told me, he told me that, you know, I don't know if it was that night or if it was the next day he told me that. That I can't recall for sure. End quote. Now, I'm not suggesting that just because Robert said he turned his phone off that we can take it as fact. But what I am saying is that the statement that Robert never said that he turned his phone off is false. He wasn't asked about it in 2006 by Michaels. And a year later, he says he might have turned it off, but he doesn't remember. But Sarah remembers. She remembers because, like Jason pointed out, that night was memorable for her because she couldn't get a hold of Robert, which she said was unusual. And then, of course, she finds out the next day that the fire had happened and Robert had been talking to Becky. And she recalls specifically that Robert told her either on that night or that next day, that Monday, that he had shut his phone off. And honestly, her not being sure whether it was the night of the murders or the next day is a direct result of Bodmer's manipulation. If you read this whole section of transcript, he was asking her about what Robert told her that night about what he was doing once she got a hold of him. She answered that he told her he was with Christian paintballing and that he had turned his phone off to save the battery. And then Bodmer makes the statement, not a question, he told you that later. He didn't tell you that night on the phone when you called. And if that's not manipulation, I don't know what is. And after he tells her that it wasn't that night, then she waffles a bit and says she can't remember if it was that night or the next day. But logic would say that would have been part of the discussion on Sunday night when she was asking why she couldn't get a hold of him. But the bottom line is that these discussions should have happened on week one, not ten years later. For our last segment today, we're going to cover the biggest omission by LeClaire to date. And that's Robert's cousin, Marty. Marty was never interviewed by police, but I called him last night to see what he remembers. Marty, thank you so much for taking time, Joe. Especially it's kind of last minute. We're late. We're we're on the deadline late at night on Thursday night. Yeah, me on a good day. Me at least. I had a doing my own work day, not a working for other people day. So. Oh, good, good. Yeah. I was, I wasn't intending, I was always intending to talk to you at some point, but this week it was like, 
I was buttoning up some loose ends, and it's one of these things where the rabbit trail leads me from I was going through Sarah Honaker's statements and then Robert's old statements and this, and I was like, I wonder if Marty can clear all this up. So I got you on the phone. I know it was a long time ago, and uh, I don't want to take up a a lot of your time, but I guess I'll just leave open to you. I got plenty of time. (laughs) If you can just share with us what you remember from that night and and maybe like that that week, uh, the the time of the murders, you were in town visiting and we're staying across the street from Robert. Just tell us kind of what you remember about everything. Yeah. I mean, at the time I, I had wrecked my car in Palm Springs. So I had uh, towed it over to my grandma's house that was, uh, you know, across the street from where Robert lived mm-hmm. kind of family summer hangout at the time. And she had a garage I could work on it in. So I, it was one of those projects that I kept digging into and it got bigger and bigger uh, so I ended up spending a lot of time there. And since it was summer, I basically had a window of time in the evening when it was cool enough to be able to do the work. So, uh, basically I was staying up late and then waking up late. And then in the evenings, I'd work on the car in the garage a little bit and try to put it back together. Uh, and this was the summer before I transferred to college. So, mm-hmm. uh, I was in a bit of a, a rush there. Um, the night of, uh, you know, Robert had asked me if I wanted to go play paintball with him. I told him I couldn't because I needed to be focusing on the project I was supposed to do. Um, so I was there doing that. Uh, asked him to get me some chapstick. Uh, he showed up. I don't believe particularly late. I've said in some other statements what time it was. And given the time, I'll refer to those previous statements as whatever, you know, whatever I said then I stand by because my memory is not quite as good about it now. Where, real quick, I, I hate to interrupt you, but when I was looking at the case file, I didn't see any statements that you would get. Did the police ever talk to you? Well, that's a whole whole different story. Do you want to go down that rabbit hole now? We'll wait for it. We'll circle back to it. Go, You go ahead. Yeah, let's circle back to that one. Um, I, I believe Robert told them when I believe he came uh, at one point. So, um, I, I don't have a statement on record. I can give you the backstory on that in a moment. And we played video games, played Xbox late. Um, he fell asleep in the bed in the back bedroom, which is, you know, big queens, they're king size bed. So we were playing Xbox. He fell asleep. I fell asleep next to him on the same bed. Um, woke up the next morning. He had woken up before me. It was probably later time, but I tended to sleep till, you know, 10 30, 11 or so at that point. So I was going to bed at like two or three. Um, he had told me that a friend had called uh, and told him something had happened up there at Becky's house. He didn't have a lot of information, but he mentioned they were, you know, asking if he'd gone hiking up there because that had been a conversation that had gone on that week. And Robert had mentioned it to me, you know, prior to to the, the day. Uh, and my my initial reaction was. I don't think the actual like gravity of what had happened was like had sunk in. It's one of those scenarios where you hear about something bad happening and it's kind of like a movie or if somebody close to you dies, you know, uh, unexpectedly, which I've had happen before, like the reality of it doesn't set in for a minute. So, you know, we were kind of talking and said his friend had asked if he'd gone hiking and I had, I, I said, you know, yeah, make sure everybody knows he didn't. And if you need them to talk to me about it, you know, 
let them know who I am and my number. And that was sort of the end of my like experience with any of that. Um, you know, nothing developed for over a year that I knew anything was going on in the background. So I didn't did it in that timeline until a year later when they, they raided the house. And then at that point I was at Davis and I was, uh, I talked to Robert on the phone, maybe the day after or something. And I remember specifically asking me on the phone, like, they know, you know, you're with me and they can call me and talk to me. And he goes, they know, I don't know why they haven't, uh, you know, that was the end of that as far as, you know, my experience, I guess. So throughout that, that week, or, or let me back up. So that night you said they asked you to go, or he asked you to go paintballing with him. Is that something he had, yeah. he had asked you in person or was that a text message or a call or. I, I believe so. I believe it was in person when he came back by the house. Uh, it could have been a text message though. I can't say with a hundred percent, you know, certainty at this point, but yeah, I mean, we were talking to each other in person when he come by, we'd send a text message back and forth. There were a lot of, you know, communications that happened. So did you primarily communicate via text when you were using the phone or was it phone calls? Text. Text. Okay. That's unfortunately we didn't know as, as you probably know, they, they never got his text message records. Yeah. Um, my cell phone, I believe was given to the defense and it seems to be not found or it had been too long and they, you know, kicked out the back end of the text messages by that point. Well, that was um, years later. Yeah. I mean, it was after they were arrested in 2014 or something. Mm -hmm. It was. Um, so I, I had all my old cell phones. So I, I looked through them, realized that, you know, the text messages had rolled over at that point. Uh, and then I believe I gave it to the private investigator for the defense in hopes that they had some way to like access the back end memory. Cause I know, like, you know, what's visible on your smartphone isn't always what is saved in the background. Sure. Yeah. Extracted somehow. So, uh, but I don't think anything ever came of that. Yeah. I don't think so either. Do you, um, you, you mentioned that prior to this, that there had been some discussion about the hike. What do you remember? Did, did, did you remember Robert was intending to go on the hike or if he wasn't planning on going on the hike? What was that? Discussion? He'd asked me at one point if I wanted to go hiking with him and Becky. And I said, I, I don't want to. And I, you know, he was with Sarah at that point. I'm like, I don't know why you want to either. I was kind of blowing it off. Uh -huh. This, the impression I got from the conversation was that he was, or that she was bothering him to do something. And he was just kind of going with it. He seemed annoyed, but you know, I, I can't speak to what his actual thoughts were. Um, but my, my perception was that, you know, she was, he felt like she was bothering him to do something and was trying to, you know, decide if he wanted to, or, you know, sure. figure out, get out of it. And um, that next morning when he told you what he had heard happened, that was after yeah. he had spoken to Javier a couple of times, we know mm -hmm. that from his statements and from the phone records and Javier's statements yeah. at that point did, was it that he felt that it was a murder and he was worried about being a suspect or did they think it was maybe an accident at that point? Do you remember that? I, I don't think he knew what had gone on. Like, well, I, I don't know. I didn't, he didn't tell me what he had heard 
word for word. It was more, it was very sort of like, let's say passive conversation. We weren't like digging deep into whatever the, you know, I wasn't interviewing him about it, I guess. Sure. He said something had happened up there and there were some bodies or something like that. It was enough that I, I realized that, you know, someone had died. I didn't know it was Becky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if he knew or not. I, you know, that's, that wasn't conveyed to me, but uh, he had mentioned that, you know, his friend, which we know now is Avi had, you know, asked if he had gone up hiking with him. Mm-hmm. And that's what sort of struck me. It was like, yeah, you better make sure people know you didn't like, and, you know, express that I was available to corroborate that if, you know, anybody had any questions. So on, on that day, he he went in, he contacted police and went in to talk to them. Was that, yeah. that was, was that some of that your suggestion? I, I don't know if that was specifically it or if he planned to do it anyway, but I had suggested that in that space and not that he go walk into the police station, but I suggested that he make it clear to the police and everybody that he wasn't up there. Right. Um, just because it seems sort of obvious that something, if something bad happens and somebody's asking if you were there, you should make sure everybody knows that you weren't, but right. Right. Now going back to that night before. So you, you have a memory of a plan for them to play paintball. Absolutely. That was a hundred percent. the plan. And, um, at some point you had, he had said you had texted and of course those wasn't corroborated by text records, but you recall asking him to get you chapstick from the, from the right. gas station. Yeah. When he showed up with the chapstick, mm. do you recall like, like, was there anything odd out of the ordinary to you that night? No, no. I mean, that that's one of the biggest like things about it is that, you know, he showed up and it wasn't like he just dropped something off and ran away. We hung out for hours until mm-hmm. early morning and he fell asleep in the same room. I fell asleep. It wasn't, you know, a casual interaction. And, you know, I've known Robert since like literally the night he was born. Uh, I think if something was very weird, I would have noticed a difference in his personality. There was nothing like that. So you didn't pick up on anything odd going on that night? No, no. What about during like that, the rest of that week? So that day he goes in and he talks to the police. He leaves. He's not mm-hmm. identified as a suspect or anything on the police record, but you were still around him for you know those days after that. But- I was there for a couple days, I think maybe it wasn't. And honestly, you know, I have pretty decent recollection of like the very, you know, immediate moments before and after. Mm-hmm. Because nothing else came of anything after that, I didn't commit it to memory. So I, I don't know that I was in Palm Springs for a substantial amount of time after that. It was right before school started. So right. I probably wasn't there for a, a long time. Well, and that, I guess that response kind of answers my question too. Because what I was was getting at was, was, was he like sweating it? Like they think I murdered her or anything? Or he just went in and talked to the no. police and then... What about his business? Well, I can confirm to that at least because, you know, I'd had communications with him in space and I don't think any of us thought that they were suspects. I don't think Robert thought he was a suspect. I certainly didn't. You know, the chapstick and the receipts were things that were available for the immediate future. If he'd come back that night freaking out, they thought he did it. I think we probably would have taken some action to, you know, provide some sort of alibi. 
Oh, we didn't know what time anything happened or whatnot. So I guess, you know, that didn't build it. But I I don't think we would have been casual about it if there was a, you know, perception that they were suspects. Right. So, I mean, you, it sounds like to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you let me know if this is accurate. But the way it sounds to <laughs> me is after he went and talked to the police, you guys didn't think that he was a suspect, that you had any reason to start verifying times and alibis. But at the same oh. at the same time, had the had the police, had the the lead investigator come mm-hmm. by and said, Hey, Robert said he was with you that night and he got you some chapstick. It that you could have shown him your text messages, you could have shown him the receipt. I I had the receipt, I believe. So uh yeah, I I'm I am sure we could have settled this had somebody come by and talk to me that, you know, in the following day or two. Um but that wasn't what happened. So we know that didn't happen. And then a year later, his house is searched. He he goes mm-hmm. in for a very long interview. They take his DNA, all of that. And then, so then it certainly, they he knew he was a suspect. But mm-hmm. then they released him. And then the case goes cold. It was marked, the case was marked suspended by LeClaire, the lead investigator at that point. And then mm-hmm. seven years go by. Right. And it's it, at some point, did the police ever at least make an attempt to talk to you? Yeah. So, uh, so in that timeline, seven years later, it was 2014. They arrested them, held them for seven months before the uh, the case was dropped. Then I think it was what you know, almost a year later, they brought the charges back again. After that, uh, detectives came by the house that I was staying in. Uh, I was at work. I was working for an aerospace company. Um, my girlfriend answered the door and talked to him. Uh, they asked if they could come talk to me at work to her. And she says, you know, not unless you can get into said aerospace company. Mm-hmm. And they didn't follow up about two weeks later. Well, it might've been later. It might've been a month after that or so. My ex-girlfriend and I were in Wisconsin and I got a phone call. Uh, from one of the detectives, talked to them. Uh, they asked me to come in for an interview. Again, just this is after they arrested them the second time. So we're 2016 so, now. Yeah, 2016, 2017. So mm-hmm. something um, after the second arrest. So at that point, my uh, my trust that they were, you know, acting in good faith had been uh, removed. Mm-hmm. Um. So I told the detective that I would love to talk to them uh, with Robert's lawyer present. And they tried to convince me that I didn't need to have a lawyer present. They said, like, well, you're not a suspect, so you don't need a lawyer. So I'm not worried about me because I wasn't worried about me. Um, And, you know, offered to come in with a lawyer present. And they said, well, if you change your mind, let us know. And declined to interview me if it wasn't on their terms. What about the the defense? I I noticed that you didn't testify at trial. Was there discussions of you testifying at trial? Yeah. So I'd originally done an interview with the the private investigator for the second defense team. Um, You know, you may know, the audience may not. You know, we hired the first lawyer. Um, you know, us as a family and on the second, uh, 
you know, arrest, we couldn't afford to hire the same lawyer again. So we had a, you know, court appointed attorney for that. Mm-hmm. So I talked to, I talked to a PI for the first lawyer and for the second lawyer, um, you know, basically told them that same story uh, at the trial. My whole family was at trial. I was under the impression that I was going to be called. So I was not attending the, the trials at all until the defense rested without calling me. They didn't call any witnesses. Um, we were told that they thought the prosecution hadn't made a sufficient case and they didn't think it was worth, you know, muddying the waters by having more people, you know, on the stand. Uh, so after they arrested, I attended the closing statements and that was my only like experience in the courtroom. Yeah. And you also had in, if it's okay with you, uh, I'll share it. If it's not, a, that's okay. But I saw that you had made a video cause you couldn't be there mm-hmm. to be played at the sentencing. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I was, you know, pretty upset that they hadn't called me and that it ended up being, you know, going the way it did. Uh, so sentencing was sort of the only opportunity to tell people essentially what I just told you. So I, I made a video and I think they played it at the sentencing mm-hmm. out of that. I don't, I don't, um, you're welcome to play it if you do. Okay. Um, uh, uh, yeah. And, you know, I think a key, the prosecutor was asked by the you know news afterwards about it. And he said that if I wanted to say something, I should have said it at trial. You know, I think he knows as well as anyone that that wasn't my choice. Right. Uh, but, you know, this, this case is so tragic. And you articulated that very well in the video. I don't know if you remember, it was years ago what you even said, but you would, mm-hmm. you would, you'd pointed out like how horrible this is for obviously the Friedley and the Hayward family. And uh, they are the, the most damaged in this whole thing. It's like, you know, they went through something that, you know, hopefully nobody has to go through, but they think they got justice now, but they really didn't. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the, the compounded tragedy. And it's, it's it's so frustrating when we go back to, you know, there are an overwhelming majority of our audience that believe in Robert and Christian's innocence. There's always a small fraction mm-hmm. that believe they're guilty. But even no matter which side you're on, surely everyone can agree that it, were it not for all of these omissions and mistakes at the beginning mm-hmm. of this, there wouldn't be this question now all these all these years later. Like if they had just gone to talk to you gone into the AMPM gas station, mm-hmm. you know, they, they just didn't follow up on anything. And in this episode, prior to this interview airing, uh, the audience will have heard Robert's girlfriend wasn't interviewed back then. Christian's girlfriend wasn't interviewed back then. Like mm-hmm. everybody who could, who saw them that night. I mean, <laughs> and I, and I guess with, you know, the, the, the frustration, I know that we all feel it, but I, I guess a, a good spot to kind of conclude this, unless you have anything else to add is you who were, with Robert that night within an hour of these, this crime occurring, do you have any questions or any doubt or have you ever had any concern that he may have been involved in these murders? None. I mean, that's really, you know, the hard part. I think, you know, often people will, you'll hear an interview on a, you know, true crime podcast or a show or something. And people say like, I know they didn't know, do this because they're not capable of it. Well, I, 
I know Robert's not capable of it, but I also know he didn't do it because of the timeline and where we were and the fact that he slept in the same room as me that night. You know, it's not a, I'm not making a character statement. I'm making a fact statement. And in regards to the people that, you know, still think they did it because, you know, I don't think that the sheriffs and the prosecutors thought they were going after innocent people. I think they thought they were doing what they had to do to convict people they believed were guilty, but they didn't give them a fair trial. And I hope that anybody who thinks that they, they are guilty at least also believes that they should get a fair trial. And what they got was not that. Yeah. I, I, I would certainly hope that everyone can agree with, agree with that. You have a much brighter outlook on the DAs than, than I do. And it, it, and this comes from a discussion I had with a DA who I know wrongfully mm-hmm. convicted someone in his words to me. Mm-hmm. And it's made, it's made a lot of these sense cases make more sense to me when he said, look, once it gets to my desk and I'm going to trial, I don't give a shit if they're innocent or guilty. My job is to win. Yeah. No, I, I, I will. Uh, I think that the prosecutors are certainly setting out to win. I think that the detectives there. Well, I, I think one of the detectives wasn't particularly bright, but I think another one believes that he was trying to get somebody that he thought did it, but he didn't have any of the evidence because the not so bright one didn't bother to collect any of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he did things that I believe are, you know, unforgivable in the quest to do what maybe he thought was right. But a lot of people through history who did terrible things thinking they were right. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
go to patreon.com slash truth and justice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. We'll be right back.